Revelation 19. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belonging to our God. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute and corrupted, who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen! Hallelujah! Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. At this, I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. I saw heaven standing open there, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. His armies of heaven, the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which, he, uh, with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has his, this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great suffer, uh, supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals and the mighty of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on, his, on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he deluded those who had received the mark of the beast, and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulphur, and the rest were killed with a sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Amen. <laughs> I haven't been up here yet. Good morning, everyone. 
In case you haven't met, my name is Ben. I'm one of the uh, pastors here at uh, Harrington Park, Enlican. It's always a great, great pleasure and privilege to open the Word of God, to bring it to bear on my life and yours. Please do keep your Bibles open at that uh, other epic and full-on uh, chapter of Revelation 19. I'll lead us briefly in prayer, then we'll get stuck into it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're the God who speaks to us in your Word and that you speak to us for our good. Uh, as a loving Heavenly Father, even when you give us dire warnings, that you do that as an expression of love uh, for your people. May we this morning take your word to heart and be changed by it to become more like Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. It wasn't long after I'd become a follower of Jesus uh, that I encountered an issue that I suspect most Christians come across sooner or later. God tells me that there will be no more crying no more mourning, no more pain, no more suffering in heaven. But he also tells me that all who have rejected the offer of salvation will suffer in hell. So how could I be genuinely joyful in the knowledge that some of my loved ones, at least as it currently stands, will be in hell? How can I be rejoicing in heaven despite hell. I realised a couple of things as I was mulling this over. Firstly, it's really tempting to find a way out of that dilemma. One of the best ways uh, to cope is just good old denial and ignorance. If I just make myself not think about it, pretend it's not a thing and just ignore it, it'll go away. Because frankly, otherwise it's, it's, too, it's pretty horrible to, to contemplate. The second way to get around it is to just hope that the whole thing is an elaborate hoax. One of the things that makes me wish the scriptures weren't true, uh, that Christianity is wrong, is the notion of, of hell, the reality of, of, of eternal conscious torment. The third is to basically distort the scriptures into a thing called universalism, the idea that God saves everyone in the end no matter what. Uh, alternatively, there's a, a more modern way of distorting the scriptures. Um, there's a bit of a trend toward this at the moment. It's called annihilationism. Christians go to heaven, but sinners just cease body and soul to exist. And, and that will be much more comfortable as well. Deep down, I knew, probably I should say the spirit by his uh, teaching of me, uh, meant that I knew that none of these were the right answer. And I remember once, as a young Christian, very tentatively and fearfully asking an older Christian, who happened to be a, a rather knowledgeable lady, I said to her, how do you reckon it can be that we're completely joyful in heaven, uh, but when at least in my case at present, almost everyone in my entire extended family will be suffering in hell? I'll never forget the answer that she gave, partly because of how striking it was, but even more because I then suspected and now know for sure that what she said, whilst terrifying, was also true. Her answer made perfect sense of Revelation chapter 19, which is why we're going to go to, uh, through this part of the Bible before I tell you what she said. If you were here last week, or if not, but you've listened to the, the sermon audio online, which I hope you have, you can do that, by the way. 
you remember that we saw God in the final judgment condemning the great prostitute uh, of Babylon. Basically, the expression of all human self-sufficiency for those who have declared independence from God and therefore uh, established their rule in, for, for the things of this world. And then the camera pans back to the throne room of God as this happens. And we see that the people of God are rejoicing. And we're shown two reasons for their praise of God at this point on the final day. The first reason for praising God is that he has condemned the great prostitute for eternity. And so, 19 verse 1, after this... I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures, you remember them from earlier on? fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. Everyone in heaven's going, yes, this is good, this is right. The word Hallelujah is a Hebrew word that basically translates praise Yahweh, praise God. It's an expression of joy and jubilation in the things God has said and done and for who he is as God. The word Hallelujah occurs only four times in the New Testament and they are all here in this first bit of Revelation chapter 19 and without exception they are applied to God carrying out his final judgment on those who have lived in independence and therefore defiance of him which is what stands behind in the end the martyrdom of his children. Hopefully you remember that uh, back in chapter 14, we saw that anyone whose name was not written in the Lamb's book of life would be punished in the presence of the Lamb and his holy angels and that the smoke of their torment would rise forever and ever. We read that in chapter 14. Well, verse 3 here uses basically the same language. The multitude in heaven are shouting hallelujah because God in his perfect justice has condemned people to eternal torment. The first reason God is praised on the final day is that he pours out his wrath upon sinners. The second reason that God is praised on the final day is because the experience of those who have been forgiven, that is us, Christians, is going to be like the joy of a wedding. Verse 5. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, probably the same multitude that was saying hallelujah before. Loud peals of thunder shouting hallelujah for our Lord God Almighty reigns. And then verse 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Couldn't be further, really, from sort of one to the other. Uh, the bride is, of course, the church, the church being all Christians across all time and place, and God's church, that is every individual Christian, will have 
made herself ready for the wedding feast. To put it another way, we will have prepared ourselves for heaven. But paradoxically, the way we have prepared ourselves is by receiving the preparation that God did all for us. So verse 8, fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. The, the, the stuff that identifies you as, as saved, as forgiven. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. It's interesting, isn't it? The, uh, the Apostle Peter would say, save yourself from this crooked and depraved generation, Acts chapter 2. Here, prepare, the bride has prepared herself. Yep. How have you prepared yourself to be in heaven? How have you saved yourself? Well, because God has done it all for you, that's how. The good things we do as Christians are 100% real choices on our part. And they are 100% given by God. And the 100% that matters is the God bit. So praise God for the good works he has given us to do this week. Uh, it's another week where our preparation for, for, for heaven is going to advance. Though that, that linen's getting whiter and finer. Just enjoy this nice little gem from God's word for a second. The good deeds God has given you and me to do this week is our preparation for heaven advancing. Doesn't matter if you don't get thanked for serving or, or for doing as Christ would do. It's preparing you for heaven. Our sin this week won't be remembered. Blotted out of the Lamb's, uh, the, the, the book of life by the blood of the Lamb. We're told that elsewhere in Revelation. It won't be remembered. But our good deeds this week will be like the wedding dress that everyone stands up for to admire as she walks down. Notice also that figuratively, repenting and putting our trust in Jesus is like accepting an invitation to a wedding. So don't feel bad to share the gospel with people. Uh, you don't have to feel guilty for doing it. You don't feel guilty for giving it. Well, I hope you don't feel guilty for giving someone a wedding invitation, right? Don't feel guilty for sharing the gospel. Unlike the cursing of God's enemies, it's a tremendous and eternal blessing to have been invited and obviously, presumably, to have accepted the invitation to that great wedding. Now, before the angel moves on with the vision, there's this little interruption that creates a tangent that John has seen fit to include for us because it teaches an important lesson. Verse 10, At this I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. Why might John want to fall at the feet of an angel to worship him? Uh, Probably because there are angels of the Lord and this angel who has been speaking has just said, these are the true words of God. So it's not entirely unreasonable that John thinks that because the angel said, my words are, are God's words, that he's the angel of the Lord and, and therefore how you respond to God is how you respond to the, the angel of the Lord. But the angel gives John an important lesson. This particular angel, like most angels, uh, is not the angel of the Lord. Like all created things, he's simply a servant. But you don't need to be an angel of the Lord to be able to declare that this is the true word of God. 
You can say, what I've just said are the true words of God, even if you're not the angel of the Lord or you're not God. How can it be that a mere servant like that angel or like you and me, who are also mere servants, how can we ever say that what we've just declared are the true words of God? Well, all throughout the New Testament, the work of God the Holy Spirit is by and large evident on account of his unsubtle connection with the Word of God. Hence, he can rightly be called the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus because to prophesy is to speak the words of God. But only the spirit can illuminate the hearer to grasp the meaning in accordance with God's will. God the Holy Spirit is the great evangelist. He is the great preacher and teacher. He bears effective witness to Jesus, which is what the whole word of God does. And he does it by bringing the word of God to bear upon the lives of those who God chooses to save and to to sanctify, to build up. See, even though the Bible reader, and he did a brilliant job today, Mr. Matt Palmer was reading the scripture, even though he was actually reading an English translation of the original scriptures, which would have been written in Greek, uh, he would still have been right, if he was a good Anglican, which most of us aren't, to declare afterwards, this is the word of the Lord. And we would all say, you can spot half Anglicans in this room, eh? (laughs) Because God, by his Holy Spirit, the spirit of the word, that is, or the spirit of prophecy, bears the testimony to Jesus that summarises that word. Uh, And he promises especially to move when the word is read and taught. It's why the scriptures can be referred to as the spirit's sword. So, for a bit of juvenile Ben humour, instead of saying evangelism, I say we call it stabbing people with a wedding invitation from here on in. What do you say? (laughs) And with that, we come to the next part of the vision, where it's plain that just as God has condemned the great prostitute so Jesus as God is the judge who will pour out the wrath of God on the last day far from the meek and mild image of Jesus with the little lamb here the image is awful in the old sense of the word filled with awe and obviously as assuring as it is terrifying so verse 11 here he is I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and you're thinking to yourself, that's the same Jesus we saw in chapter 1, correct. And on his head are many crowns, because he has all authority. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself He's dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. A couple of things to notice. First of all, we're told that Jesus alone knows the name that's written on himself. But then the very next verse, we're told what it is, the Word of God. Well, quite simply, Jesus alone is the Word of God. And yet, we can know him. I think that's what's been communicated here. For we know the Word of God. Uh, Secondly, notice that just as we have had our clothes figuratively whitened 
by the blood of Jesus, we saw that back in chapter 7, that Jesus himself shares his righteousness with us. Because he too has the robe dipped in blood. It can't be to cleanse himself of sin because, newsflash, Jesus has no sin. But he has the robe dipped in blood. Uh, It's Jesus' blood and righteousness by which we stand guiltless before the holy judge. Uh, I don't know everyone here, if you're new or you're visiting or you haven't heard much about Jesus in the Bible before, uh, understand this, if nothing else from today. The way that anyone can stand in the presence of God and live and actually be on good terms uh, with him is not because of anything good I've done or you've done or anyone's done, except for what Jesus has done. He has paid the price for your sin. He has the blood so that you can be white. Beautiful imagery. Uh, that's something you've never heard before. Please grab me afterwards and ask me about why I've said that. But thirdly, notice that we'll be standing with him as the judgments are pronounced and carried out. Remember before that Christians are those who have been given, quote, fine linen, bright and clean. That's what it says earlier in this chapter. Well, as Jesus, the final horseman, rides out to bring the final judgment, we, his army, will accompany him. Verse 14, the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in, what do you know, fine linen, white and clean. The bride are going to be the army of Jesus when he carries out his final judgment. Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 would say, don't you know that we will judge angels? Don't you know that we will judge the world? There we are with the great judge, standing with him, concurring with him, agreeing with him, uh, fighting (laughs) figuratively with him. So in this vision, Jesus has blood on his robe, whereas we have the wedding garments white and clean. It's precisely because Jesus shed his blood for us that we can even do any of the good deeds that God has prepared for us to do. And either you're on the side of Jesus, like in a war, as he comes in judgment, or else you're against him. You're the victor or you're the vanquished. There's no in-between. And if you're not with the victor, if you're not with Jesus, you will be on the receiving end of his judgment. What's the standard by which Jesus will carry out the judgment of God? Well, of course, it's the word of God. Verse 15, coming out of his mouth, and we've seen this already, but we see it again. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword. That is, he speaks the word of God, which can build up or tear down. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and his thigh, he has the name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When this great judge rides out, there will be certain and irreversible consequences. The scriptures warn us quite graphically Because God, in his tremendous love and mercy, wants people to repent before it's too late. That's why it wants us. But once the judge rides out, it's going to be devastating uh, for those who have lived in independence and therefore defiance of God. And the angels know this. So verse 17, I saw an angel standing in the sun, as you do, who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty of horses and their riders, the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. If you're not in the joyful wedding supper of the Lamb, you will be 
at the terrifying judgment supper of God, which he gives to the vultures. Worldly status makes no difference, whether slave or king, maid or queen. If you've lived independently of Jesus, you're an enemy of the holy judge and you will face his condemnation. These words actually serve as a loving warning from God to those who have not yet repented and turned to Christ. And they also serve as a great source of comfort to Christians. In 1948, a Christian man from Romania named Richard Wormbrand was kidnapped and imprisoned for preaching the gospel which was in violation, of course, of Stalin's communist ideals. Richard Wormbrand's first imprisonment, first of a number, lasted eight years. And in his book, it's a very popular book, called Tortured for Christ, Wormbrand gives a few accounts of what it's like being a Christian in a prison run by the communists from 1948. In chapter two of his book, he writes, and I will quote... A pastor by the name of Florenska was tortured with red-hot iron pokers and with knives. He was beaten very badly. Then starving rats were driven into his cell through a large pipe. He could not sleep because he had to defend himself all the time. If he rested a moment, the rats would attack him. He was forced to stand for two weeks, day and night. The communists wished to compel him to betray his brethren but he resisted steadfastly. Eventually, they brought in his 14-year-old son to the prison and began to whip the boy in front of his father, saying that they would continue to beat him until the pastor said what they wished him to say. The poor man was half mad. He bore it as long as he could. Then he cried to his son, Alexander, I must say what they want. I can't bear your beating anymore. The son answered, Father, don't do me the injustice of having a traitor as a parent. Withstand. If they kill me, I will die with the words, Jesus and my fatherland. Because as you know, at the time it would have had to be Stalin and my motherland. He's being very, very powerfully defined. The communists, enraged, fell upon the child and beat him to death with blood spattered across the walls of the cell. He died praising God. Our dear brother Florenska was never the same after seeing this. Christians were hung upside down on ropes and beaten so severely that their bodies swung back and forth under the blows. Christians were also placed in icebox refrigerator cells, which were so cold that the frost and ice covered the inside. I was thrown into one while I had very little clothing on. Prison doctors would watch through an opening until they saw symptoms of freezing to death. Then they would give a signal and the guards would rush in to take us out and make us warm. When we were finally warmed, they would immediately put us back into the icebox cells to freeze. Thawing out, then freezing to within minutes of death, being thawed out over and over again. Even today, there are times when I can't bear to open a refrigerator. What the communists have done to Christians surpasses any possibility of human understanding. I have seen communists whose faces, while torturing believers, shone with rapturous joy. They cried out while torturing the Christians, we are the devil. 
End quote. Like the souls of our brothers and sisters crying out from under the altar, begging God for justice and vengeance, there will be many Christians longing for the day when that white horseman, the holy judge himself, rides out to bring complete and final justice. At one and the same time, we Christians are to be people who turn the other cheek, who endure hardship for the name of Christ, who suffer for his glory, in the hope that others will turn to him and be saved. As a Christian, I've taken up my cross to follow him. That's part of the course. But we are also instructed to leave room for God's vengeance, because he is rightly a God of vengeance, Romans 12, 19. It's often hard for us to grasp this because we've not received that much, if any, ill treatment for being Christian. But if we love our brothers and sisters who have, then we'll be very comforted by the fact that our God will not let the guilty go unpunished. There will be a final reckoning and we will cry hallelujah when it happens. In the meantime, knowing what is soon to come, we will desperately want to see others repent as we have before it's too late. By way of simple summary, God's final judgment is cause for celebration, but also, of course, for fearless perseverance. Of course, God's enemies, in their ignorance and their pride, will assume they have a chance against him, uh, but the war, from their perspective will be a fatefully disappointing anticlimax. Verse 19, the last bit of the chapter. Then I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulphur. The rest were killed with a sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse and all the birds gored themselves on their flesh. We get a parallel account of this again in chapter 20, by the way, and it's presented the same way. Huge build-up to this war that's over in an instant. How thoroughly ridiculous it is to think that you could stand up against the one whose name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords and have a chance. Especially after you've shed the blood of his brothers and sisters or sided with the people who have by being invested in the things of this world rather than turning to Christ. Uh, notice yet again that the MO of Satan, as it always is, uh, is to delude people, to deceive. That's what we're seeing here. We've seen throughout Revelation that he does it by enticing people into worldliness or by setting up false religion that looks like the, the truth of the gospel but isn't. That's why part of maturing as a Christian involves fixing our eyes where Christ is seated in the heavenly realms and also growing in our knowledge and our discernment so that we're not taken in by false teaching. So how is it that Christians will have no crying or mourning or pain in heaven even though we'll know that many will be, figuratively, the ones with the flesh gorged, the ones condemned with the eternal uh, smoke of their torment. Well, the answer I got from that knowledgeable Christian woman still shocks me. 
She said, on the last day, we will see just how thoroughly rebellious and depraved all sinners really are. That we won't be able to help but agree with God's perfect justice and exclaim hallelujah. The praise will be doubly enthusiastic because we know that if not for his incredible grace and mercy, we would rightly be condemned along with the rest of his enemies. But that second fact doesn't stand in the way of the first, that our God is a God who rightly brings justice and vengeance upon sinners. Yes, sin is that bad. One of our greatest problems in the here and now is that we so easily fail to believe God when he says that human sinfulness is so thoroughly and evil and deserving of hell that the perfect justice from the perfect judge is to condemn sinners in eternity. It is so bad that his one and only son bore that hell on the cross so that we don't have to. But we're the ones who put him there. We actually deserve it. If you're still a sinner, that is, if you haven't turned to Christ and begged him for the salvation that he alone can give, then I beg you, accept the wedding invitation to the Supper of the Lamb. And I warn you that to reject that means you will be at the Supper of God's judgment because you do deserve his condemnation just as I do. My way of implication, it's fairly simple. That because God's final judgment is cause for celebration and fearless perseverance, that we do both those things. Look forward to that final hallelujah. What does that actually do for me? Well, it means I can be fearless in my perseverance because I know that no matter what happens in the here and now, perfect justice will reign. That actually frees me to be unafraid and unashamed about proclaiming Jesus to others. No matter what happens to me, uh, the wrongs will be righted uh, on that final day and that final hallelujah will be said. Uh, One of the greatest helps I find in sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus with others, uh, is uh, to do so in the knowledge that no matter what becomes of me, I'm on the side of that rider in his army and the day will come, even if I have to bear a lot of difficulty now, the day will come when I'll say that final hallelujah. I am freed up to not be afraid as I speak the message of Jesus to those around about me. I know that speaking the message of Jesus can be a fearful thing for people. It's so wonderful, actually, that in our growth groups at the moment, we're doing the evangelism course. I think it's, uh, it's fantastic. Um, Uh, one of the the, the great motivations is to just keep reminding ourselves what will it be like on the last day. Keep looking forward uh, to start dissipating that fear about sharing the gospel with others here and now. Let me conclude in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that as a loving Heavenly Father, you speak the truth. Uh, You warn us of what we need to be warned of. You motivate us with what we need to be motivated by. Father, we know that final hallelujah will be said by us and we thank and praise you that you're the God who brings perfect justice. Uh, We thank and praise you that those who have been uh, enemies against you, those who have uh, taken away your children, uh, will have to give an account. 
and they will be punished. But Father, we thank you that in your loving mercy you've given a way out through the blood of Jesus and you've given us that great message. Father, we recognise that we're as deserving as anyone else of your condemnation. So when we say that hallelujah, there'll be double enthusiasm because we'll know that it could have been us. But in the meantime, Father, may that uh, drive us to see more people come into a saving relationship with you through hearing the gospel of Jesus. And we pray that by your spirit you convict people of the truth of the word of God and that they would join us and be with the rider and his army rather than the devil and his vanquished. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.